How Israel Helped Boston, today, Friday, April 26. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Israel, unfortunately, has lots of experience treating blast victims. We'll hear how that helped Boston last week. Also, what if the manhunt for the bombing suspects had involved a drone strike? An American who posted the idea on Facebook got a big reaction from Pakistanis. And they started commenting, come here, come to our country. You know, we're just normal people. We have jobs. The only difference is that we walk around wondering if there's going to be a bomb falling on us. And later, the Book of Mormon is playing in London right now, and the Mormon church is looking to take advantage of the publicity. This Londoner is skeptical. I think they're just asking for a barrage of of ridicule, really. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Boston Marathon bombing suspect Jokart Tsarnaev is continuing to recover from his wounds, but he's doing it now in a new location. The 19-year-old suspect has been moved to a federal medical detention facility some 40 miles west of Boston. Until yesterday, the alleged bomber was under guard at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. That's one of several Boston hospitals that are still treating the victims of the marathon attack. When doctors and medical staff in Boston found themselves facing the horrific aftermath of the two blasts, many were well prepared, thanks in part to lessons shared by emergency medical personnel from Israel. The world's Matthew Bell reports on that connection. Minutes after the bombs went off in downtown Boston, there was an announcement over the loudspeakers at Massachusetts General Hospital. Get ready for large numbers of casualties. The emergency room was full already so patients had to be moved to make space. Staff had talked about and planned for a mass casualty situation, but this was the real thing. The, uh, the most severe patients appeared to uh, arrive very quickly by a Boston EMS, and they were suffering from traumatic amputations. If you like, their legs were blown off. Dr. Alistair Kahn is chief of emergency medicine at Mass General, and this was him speaking on the afternoon of April 15th, not long after the bombing at the marathon finish line. We are still on activation. Uh, We hope that there would be no further injuries. However, we are prepared if further explosions occur. Kahn said his staff was better prepared because a few years ago, Israeli emergency medical experts went to Boston and helped upgrade the hospital's disaster response plan. We obviously have a limited experience of explosions in an urban area. The Israelis unfortunately have this, and I'm very pleased that we went through that orientation and additional training. It's worked well today. This morning, I spent some time with Israeli physician Avi Rivkind, who sort of rewrote the book on treating victims of terrorist bombings. He's the head of surgery at Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem. You see, straight line from outside to inside. Straight from the parking from lot? From the parking to through, here. Through a few doors, and then what is this room here? That's the admitting area. This is where the patients are yeah. treated. The layout of the emergency room here is set up to handle mass casualty events like a bus bombing. Bulky electronic equipment, for example, hangs from the ceiling. That frees up space around a patient's bed. 
One key to emergency preparedness when it comes to treating trauma, Rifkin says, is about unlearning what's taught in medical school. Because as a medical student, you have, what is your name, Mr. John? Since when you are sick, all this takes time. It's out the window. Totally, it's not even out the window. It doesn't enter to the room. It's another type of medicine. That's something that people should absorb. The thing about casualties after a bomb blast, Rivkin says, is that they often include two different types of injuries, penetrating and blunt. That means shrapnel wounds or even severed limbs. And then at the same time, there can be internal injuries that are tough to detect. It's an injury that... If you don't see it, if you don't treat it, if you don't recognize it, you're in a problem. Because they're dropping dead like this. Really dropping dead. Rivkin helped devise a training system for emergency triage called Look, Touch, Feel. It's all about thinking outside the box and quickly to diagnose and treat multiple victims of blast trauma. Rivkin says other important lessons learned in Israel are more practical than medical. At his hospital, everyone expects the cell network to go down after a terror attack, so nobody bothers to call into work. They just come to the hospital. Everyone from assistants to senior physicians shows up and pitches in. But for all his experience dealing with terror medicine, Rivkin says one thing he hasn't quite figured out is how to deal with the psychological stress that comes with treating victims of a mass casualty event. It's totally, you know, depend on the, on the human they're dealing with it. Medically, you can somehow to give guidelines. Psychologically, I don't think so. Rivkin says one thing seems pretty clear, though. Terrorism is probably here to stay, and that means medical professionals everywhere need to be prepared. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. A Boston Globe article today offers new details about the carjacking that helped police find the two Boston bombing suspects. The story of that night unfolds like a Tarantino movie. That's how Globe reporter Eric Moskowitz put it with his article, which is based on an interview with the carjacking victim, who is identified only as Danny. Danny is a Chinese man who doesn't want his Chinese name used because he's trying to lay low. But his account vividly describes the 90 minutes between the carjacking and his dramatic escape, just minutes before that shootout in Watertown. Seth Manukin was one of the first reporters on the scene in Cambridge and Watertown last Thursday evening. He also co-directs the MIT graduate program in science writing. What struck Manukin about Danny's account was how he interacted with his captors. Danny was able to very quickly identify what mode of communication might be most effective for communicating with the Sarnoff brothers. As someone who also was not from the United States, he downplayed his wealth, both in terms of what the payments were for his car and what model car it was, to try and find some common ground with two people who, in all probability, wanted to kill him. How is someone with uh, such a different experience able to tap into that language? Is it just survival instinct at that point? Well, this whole idea of code switching, of using different modes of communication depending on the situation is one that has gotten a fair amount of attention recently. And I think this is a really 
interesting example of that. Explain it, what you mean it, by code switching. An example of code switching might be when high school students talk one way with their peers and another way when they're applying for college or applying for jobs or in college. That, yeah. that, that's academics. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a huge group, immigrants with, with vastly different experiences. I mean, how do you know what code to switch into? What it sounds like with Danny is that what he was able to do is pick up on clearly these were two people who were not positively inclined towards the United States and towards America. And so he picked up on that right away. He also very quickly picked up on the fact that his wealth and status that he'd been able to achieve in the United States through working at, at a startup were not the qualities that these brothers were going to likely admire mm -hmm. and would even more than that probably cause him to be more suspect in their eyes. He does appear to have established enough of a rapport with the brothers that they were talking about things like music and iPhones. So certainly it did seem to be successful forming some kind of bond there. Seth, you're a professor at MIT. As I said, the campus was on lockdown Thursday evening and all day Friday. Uh, MIT officer Sean Collier was killed uh, today, a week after events there. What, what's the atmosphere on campus? It's still a little bit raw. And I think for some students, it's going to be for some time to come. A couple of days ago, Vice President Joe Biden came to a memorial service for Sean Collier. His speech included some words about the suspected bombers. Uh, and you tweeted afterwards that my MIT students were offended by Biden's speech, the line in particular referring to the Sarnayev brothers as knockoff jihadis. Can you explain what your students have been saying? Any university is going to be a place where there are a lot of different cultures, people from a lot of different countries. And one of the unfortunate effects of that was kind of obscuring the fact that there are Muslims who view jihad as what it is literally defined as, and, and that is finding a way to be closer to God, not as some part of a terrorist movement. And to be fair to Biden, he did go out of his way to stress that we are all Hindus and we are all Muslims. But even with saying that, the sort of dismissive and derogatory phrase, knockoff jihadis, really made some people uncomfortable. Seth Manukin co-directs the MIT graduate program in science writing. He's been writing about the events following the Boston bombing for The New Yorker. Seth, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Marco. A week ago, the manhunt for the surviving Boston bombing suspect came to a dramatic close when Jokar Sarnayev was found hiding in a boat in a suburban backyard and taken into custody. But what if the ending had played out differently? The world's Clark Boyd has that story. Like many, Rhode Island native Micah Daigle was glued to the TV and Internet last Friday. Daigle, who now lives and works in San Francisco, says he was worried about friends here in Boston. And like everyone else, he was relieved when Jokar Sarnayev was taken into custody. But on his Facebook page, Daigle decided to try a thought experiment. He wrote, in a kind of mock newspaper tone, Boston police received a report that suspected terrorist Jokar Sarnayev was hiding in a boat in Watertown. Minutes later, Daigle wrote, the low buzz of a drone was heard overhead. Seconds later, the post continued, an enormous explosion engulfed the area, destroying the boat and nearby homes. Sources say 46 Watertown residents were killed in the missile strike, including 12 children. And then Daigle posed this, of course, that's not what happened. 
But if it did, wouldn't we find it unconscionable? If so, he asked on Facebook, then why are Americans okay with our government doing this to people in other countries? For all that week when this was happening in Boston, I saw that a lot of people were empathizing very deeply for the people in Boston who were a victim of these attacks. And a lot of these same people are not, you know, are not really thinking day to day about the same sort of terror that we, you know, perpetrate on these other countries. Daigle says that for the first six or seven hours, his Facebook friends weighed in. Some supported his point, but others, not so much. They felt as though it was inappropriate of me to use this tragedy to uh, make a political point. And, you know, my response to them was, well, this isn't a political point. This is just, you know, being ethically consistent Um, that, you know, we shouldn't think of deaths here as a tragedy and then think of deaths elsewhere as, you know, a political issue. And then Daigle's post started getting shared outside his circle of friends. Some American commenters supported him. Others called him unpatriotic and suggested, not so politely, that he should leave America. But it was the Pakistani commenters who surprised Daigle the most. A lot of the Pakistanis who reached out to me were just very grateful and thankful that somebody from America could actually kind of see their point of view. One Pakistani wrote, I salute you for realizing our pain. But some Americans fired back. This guy joined the post and he said... Look, I'm in support of the drone program. If you're going to come here and uh, kill us, then be ex- you know expect us to come after you. And instead of the Pakistanis responding angrily, they actually just had a really reasonable conversation with him. And by the end of it, he signed off and said, "Look, I've you know I think I've changed my mind on this." Uh, and it was actually, I mean, that was a really touching moment for me seeing seeing that happen on my newsfeed. It was really cool. But, Daigle says, the half-life of a thought-provoking Facebook post is short. Soon, the comments became a forum for petty, hateful attacks. Daigle says he quit trying to moderate the discussion. I had to get back to work, he says. He's pleased, though, that he could at least get a discussion going about the trade-offs between security and personal freedom. And he hopes that it spurred some Americans to empathize, at least briefly, with the kind of fear that some around the world live with daily. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Find more of our ongoing coverage of drones, including a recent report on one designer's project to create drone-proof clothing. Come to theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. In Britain, many parents of young children are worried about a disease they thought was part of medical history. I'm talking about the measles. The country is in the grip of a measles epidemic. Measles can be fatal. More than 900 people have come down with measles in the Swansea area alone in Britain. One man has died, and the government has warned that the epidemic could spread. The reason? Well, for the last 10 years, many parents have not allowed their children to receive the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or MMR, that protects against measles. Dr. Ben Goldacre is a doctor and author of the books Bad Science and Bad Pharma and is a campaigner for better public understanding of science medicine. Dr. Goldacre, explain, first of all, why so many children and young people in Britain are presently not vaccinated against measles? Well, in the late 1990s, we had a, a, an anti-MMR vaccine scare driven by a piece of research that has subsequently been described as fraudulent by the British Medical Journal. 
but also driven by some very responsible reporting in the UK. So the, the, the original research that the scare was based on, even if it had been completely, perfectly well conducted, would still never have justified the four-year-long campaign against vaccination by UK journalists. The sobering reality for journalists to ponder on, I think, is the public really do listen to what we say. Well, that false research was more than 10 years ago. How much is the media to blame here for letting that fake research be accepted as real? Well, even if that research had been completely perfect and above board, it was still only a case series report, which is a very weak form of evidence in the first place. It's a, a series of anecdotes, essentially. And more importantly than that, there was nothing in that research to justify Andrew Wakefield's claims that the single vaccine was safer than the triple vaccine. And yet those claims are what were widely reported. And that's what led to the drop in uptake of, of the MMR vaccine. Is this a situation unique to the UK? I mean, is it difficult for journalists in any country to handle the complexities of scientific and medical data? Well, I, I think there are two issues that drive health scares. Firstly, as you say, science is often quite a difficult technical area. And while I would like to see good, well-informed science and health specialist correspondents making their own judgments about the strength of evidence, the reality is that often stories, especially when they become very big stories, tend to be covered by generalists. And so they set up um, disagreements in science as being on the one hand on the other. So the problem is you have, on the one hand, the entire weight of scientific and medical evidence and all of the views of the people who know best. And then on the other hand, you have perhaps one maverick, if you like, um, or a very tiny campaign group that get 50% of the airtime. But there's very clear evidence of mischief, really, on the part of certainly UK journalists covering the MMR story. So what will happen next as far as uh, the, the epidemic, the measles epidemic in, in Britain? Well, uh, people are trying very hard to run catch-up campaigns to get people to have the MMR vaccine. I, I, I think actually uh, one very frightening prospect is not only will we have this measles outbreak, but also when the children who are now 12, 14, who missed the measles vaccine, go to university, then I suspect we will be seeing mumps. And more importantly than that, I think we will once again see further vaccine scares in the future because very little has changed. Journalists in the UK, for the most part, have actually been very reluctant to accept responsibility for misleading the public on the MMR vaccine. And also the MMR paper itself in The Lancet wasn't retracted for 10 years, partly because we're actually rather bad in science at dealing with problematic research. Very little has changed there either. So vaccine scares have been around since the 19th century. They've always had the same basic structure and we will continue to see them in the future. Dr. Ben Goldacre, author of Bad Science and Bad Pharma. Thanks so much for explaining this to us. Thank you. Residents of London have been seeing the ads for a few months now promoting The Book of Mormon, the hit Broadway musical that recently jumped across the pond to the British capital's West End theaters. This month, a new set of ads appeared on buses and subway stations promoting The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Mormon religion doesn't have a large following in Britain. Russell Newlove has more. I'm standing in Charing Cross train station, one of London's busiest, 
where above me hangs a huge billboard covered in pictures of friendly, smiling faces with the heading, I'm a Mormon. It's part of a drive by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to give the British public a chance to get to know them better. The idea behind it is to essentially to correct misinformation about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, a lot of myths out there and a lot of stereotypes. Malcolm Adcock is a spokesman for the Mormon Church in Britain. He says the recent success of the Book of Mormon musical has led to increased interest here in the church. What the I'm a Mormon campaign does, it gives people an opportunity to engage at whatever level they, they, they would like to engage. Um, we've set up a new uh, website which goes hand-in-hand hand with the I'm a Mormon campaign and um, we want to introduce people to real Mormons, to regular members of the church. There aren't that many Mormons in Britain, only about 200,000, less than half a percent of the population. The established religion here is the Church of England, but the country is increasingly secular, and religion is increasingly seen as old-fashioned and irrelevant. I asked Adcock if he didn't think the Mormons were entering into a saturated marketplace. It's certainly true that it is an apparently increasingly secular society. On the other hand, Britain has increased diversity of religion, and um, I think there are a lot of people out there who are curious about religion, um, about spiritual things. So I, I don't think it's a saturated market. I, I think there are people who are looking for answers. But selling a new product, especially one as complex as a new religion, is difficult. Increased awareness might sound like a good thing, but for a lot of people, their first experience of Mormonism is a comedy musical mocking it. So is the ad campaign the right approach to capitalise on the supposed surge in interest? Here's what some people outside the station had to say. I think they're just asking for a barrage of, a, of ridicule, really. Maybe some people will phone and ask a serious question, but I can't see many people asking a serious question, to be honest. Uh, I thought they were a little bit bizarre. I do think that religion's fairly well set in this country, but I think there's always uh, room for manoeuvre. So maybe there is an opening. I decided to ask a professional what he makes of the Mormon ads. Simon Blackman is from Design Space, a marketing strategy company based in London. Well, it's an attempt to, to bring us to a sense of being able to approach them. It's about friendliness. It's, we're normal people, we're just like you. Ask a Mormon as much as you would ask Google. That's really my first reaction. It's, it's about a proximity idea of not being different and not being strange. When, of course, we know what's prompted it is this musical where we are portraying them as being strange, obscure, irrational thinkers. The ads will be up until the end of the month. After that, they'll run online. The question is, will visitors to the church and its website outnumber those who see the musical? For The World, I'm Russell Newlove in London. Before we take a break, we have one other quick news item from Britain. A supermarket chain in the north of England has been ordered by authorities to withdraw bags of peanuts from sale because they didn't carry a warning that they might contain peanuts. In a statement, the supermarket said anyone with a nut allergy who had purchased the bags labeled wholehearted roasted monkey nuts should not consume the product and should return it for a full refund, to which I can only ask who branded those peanuts in the first place. This is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Still to come, a building collapse in Bangladesh this week left hundreds of garment workers dead. Their bosses had contracts with Western companies demanding low prices. They make the low bids by cutting corners on worker salaries. They make the low bids by cutting corners on workplace safety. And these companies are happy to turn a blind eye. 
NPRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. They're still looking for survivors today under the rubble of a collapsed building in the capital of Bangladesh, Dhaka. Hundreds of garment workers died when the structure came down on Wednesday, but officials say hundreds more remain missing. Today, thousands of angry workers took to the streets of Dhaka to demand better working conditions. Bangladeshi garment factories supply many European and American retail giants, such as Benetton, Walmart, and The Gap. The building that collapsed in Dhaka was home to five different factories and some 3,000 workers. On Tuesday, a structural engineer had recommended the building be evacuated, but factory owners forced their employees to return to work. Zafar Sobhan, editor of the Dhaka Tribune, followed the protest today. Well, a lot of them had uh, bamboo sticks and a couple of local restaurants were smashed up. A lot of cars were vandalized, I think close to 100, and a lot of people sort of took to the streets. Obviously, you can understand the anger and the fury of, uh, of the garment workers. At last count, the death toll has risen above 300. That makes it the biggest uh, industrial tragedy in South Asia since Bhopal some 30 years ago. And so obviously when something like this occurs, it ignites great emotions. It wasn't long ago. It was, um, I think, in November last year that, uh, that the Tazreen fashions, that a fire broke out. I think 120 people uh, died in that accident. And not six months later, we have another incident with 300 people dead. And in both those cases, what is remarkable is not only were these uh, factories operating with uh, problematic compliance, but there was actually human error. What happened at Tazreen was that the worker, that the, the fire alarm went off. But the workers were told that it was faulty and it was a false alarm and they were told to go back to work, which they then did. And then, of course, uh, tragedy ensued. And again, here, this disaster would have been entirely avoidable. The owners of the garment factories had full notice that the structure was unsound and dangerous, yet they forced their employees back to work. And when you say owners, I mean, we're talking about garment factories that are manufacturing clothes for Western clothing companies. Are the owners Bangladeshis who then contract to these Western clothing companies? Typically, these uh, garment factories are owned by Bangladeshi entrepreneurs who, you know, take orders from foreign companies. But nevertheless, like I said, I don't think we can absolve the foreign companies of of their role either. It's clear that, you know that they should have a responsibility. And in fact, under the laws of most of these countries in the EU and in the, in the US, that it is an affirmative duty of theirs to make sure that the factories where these uh, clothes are manufactured comply with a long list of workplace safety and, and worker conditions. So what are those Western clothing companies saying today? They say what they always say, oh, well, you know, um, this has nothing to do with us. We, you know, we have such a long supply chain. It's very, it's, it's, it's very difficult for us to observe uh, the entire situation. It's very difficult for us to scrutinize where every T-shirt or every pair of jeans is made in, 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 around the world. We're doing our best. And ultimately, you know, there's a lot of pressure that's placed on the garment manufacturers in terms of slashing their costs and keeping the costs down. And we all know that it's 
business race to the bottom. You know, the lower the bid you make to these uh, clothing companies, the more business you're going to get. And they know full well how people make the low bids. They make the low bids by cutting corners on worker salaries. They make the low bids by cutting corners on workplace safety. And these companies are happy to turn a blind eye. Since speed picked up some years ago in Bangladesh uh, with the growth of the garment industry there, there are now 5,000 factories, uh, more than 3 million jobs uh, have been created, many for women. Advocates say the garment industry helped lift many of those people out of poverty. Is the Bangladesh government prepared to slow that growth down? The additional expense of making sure that workers are able to work in safe conditions and that they can command a fair salary is really fairly negligible in the great scheme of things. I think if concerted efforts were made by the Bangladesh government, by the garment industry in Bangladesh, by the clothing companies in the West, and even also at, at some level by consumers, we could solve this problem very easily. I mean, this is an eminently solvable problem. It is not as though, you know, you have to make a choice. It's not as though, well, you know, you can either have um, competitive factories or you can have workplace safety in decent salaries for your workers, but you can't have both. That's absolutely not correct. You absolutely can have both. Anyone who's trying to tell you differently probably has uh, some very cheap clothes they're trying to sell you. That's about it. Zafar Subhan, the editor of the Dhaka Tribune, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Another industrial disaster closer to home now. The people in the small town of West, Texas, are still trying to understand what caused a fertilizer plant there to explode. The blast last Wednesday killed 14 people, nearly all of them emergency responders, and wounded 200. Help is coming from various quarters, including the Czech Republic. Why? Well, we called up Zach Crane to find out. He's of Czech descent, grew up in West Texas, and he now lives in Dallas, where he's an editor for D Magazine. So, Zach, what is the Czech Republic's interest in your hometown, West? West is predominantly made up of people of, of Czech descent, like myself. My mother's last name is Shulak, and uh, her father was a first-generation Texan. You know, his parents came over from the Czech Republic, you know, around the turn of the century. And that's how it goes for most of the people in the town. Wow. Um, it's a little more diverse now, but as I was growing up, I mean, it was not even remotely unusual to hear people speaking Czech to one another. Every year around Labor Day, they have West Fest, which is a Czech Heritage Festival. I was just uh, I was just in West yesterday, and um, they're building a new highway overpass. And on the side of the overpass, there they've you know chiseled in um, Czech dancers doing you know probably a polka or a shadish or something like that. You know, I also heard there's a there there's a hotel or there was a hotel called the Check In. <laughs> the Check In, yeah, it opened uh, sometime in the last decade. I'm kind of stunned that no one had ever opened a hotel named it the Check In. <laughs> there, it seems like such an obvious connection, you know, especially with so many people coming down for the West Fest Check Festival every year. There's a natural need for a for a hotel, and it obviously should be called the Check In. So I'm glad that kind of actually finally happened. So what's been the response from uh, from Prague to this terrible tragedy in West? Are they almost treating it like a humanitarian disaster among their own people? For what I can tell, yeah, for sure. I know they are donating um, $200,000 to aid in the rebuilding and everything like that. And I've definitely heard from, uh, you know, a lot of people over there, they're taking it very, very seriously. I mean, I think Czechs are kind of spread out all over the place. But in, in central Texas, there are definitely a couple of pockets where it's like West, where it's big Czech population, and it's just a heavy concentration. Give us a sense of the devastation of the explosion, how it physically affected the town of West. West is so small that it's not terribly far from downtown, and this was like probably another one of the busy centers because there's intermediate school, which used to be the junior highs right there, and it's at least part of that's going to have to be torn down. 
the high school is just across the pasture. The tiny little hospital is, you know, maybe 500 yards away. The rest home is right there. So there's a three-page list of addresses. Of all those lists of houses, there's two that were marked green for OK, and those are probably the furthest away. So everything around there is it's going to take, you know, a long time. I think it's just more emotionally because, you know, everybody knows everybody down there, at least a little bit. You know, everybody is affected in, in some way. I can't imagine there is one single person who lives in West who did not lose somebody or did not know somebody who, who lost a significant amount of property. So it's going to take a while to heal that. But the people down there are so tough. Well, I was going to ask they you, I mean, te- Texans have a bigger-than-life reputation. Czechs have their own character. Has the hybrid Texan-Czech mentality, whatever that is, been strong metal for dealing with this tragedy? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean... Texans are a certain way, and, you know, Czechs are a certain way, and, and, and you're right. There's like a hybrid of that that exists in West where people are just like, we're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. We're going to fight back. We're going to be okay. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who are devastated and upset, but they're strong. If it's going to have to happen to a certain group of people who have the strength to get through this, I mean, these people definitely fall in that category. Well, Zach, we wish you and your family and the good people of West Texas a strong and speedy recovery from this disaster. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me on. That is Zach Crane, who grew up in West Texas. He now lives in Dallas, where he's an editor for D Magazine. That noise is your first clue to our GeoQuiz. Now, you'll be hearing more of it in the coming year, whether you like it or not. Organizers of the Next World Cup in Brazil this week introduced it as the official musical instrument for the soccer tournament. So we're looking for the name of this rattling percussion instrument that'll be sold to fans at World Cup matches next year. It's not an especially loud noise, but imagine 50,000 of them in a soccer stadium. All I'm saying, soccer fans, remember the earplugs. Julio Gomez is a Brazilian sports journalist in Sao Paulo. Julio, what is the name of this little Brazilian instrument, and where does it come from? Uh, hello, Marco. The name is Cachirola in Brazilian Portuguese. Yeah, It comes from another instrument, a small instrument called Cachixi, which is part of the capoeira. Capoeira is a dance from Bahia, which is uh, the most famous northeastern state of Brazil. In Bahia, they dance capoeira, which looks more like a fight. People are throwing feet to each other, but never hitting. It's a game, actually. Mm. More than a dance, they call it a game. This cachixi is this rattle that is part of the capoeira sounds. They adapted it, and they created the cachirola. What makes the sound? Some beads inside this uh, instrument, or are there some beads on the outside rubbing against a kind of a bumpy surface? No, just it's a plastic ball with uh, synthetic material inside it. Okay, so So, more like a shaker. Yeah, exactly. So some people are calling this Brazil's version of the Vuvuzela. The Vuvuzela is that deafening horn that showed up at the World Cup in South Africa. Does it risk becoming as hated as the Vuvuzela by outsiders? Well, I pray every day that it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Vuvuzelas, the Vuvuzelas I, I, I was in South Africa for the 2010 World Cup, and it was really unbearable. You couldn't even uh, listen to voices, to people shouting and supporting their national teams. So I don't know if we're going to have 60,000 cacherolas inside the stadiums or not. It's a, it's a mystery for me as well. Next weekend, we're going to have the first idea of it. Wait, what, a bunch of them will be sold at a soccer match and people will see and hear how it sounds? Yeah. Next weekend on Sunday, we have a good match here between Bahia and Vitoria. 
Bahia and Vitória are the two big teams of Salvador, which is the capital of the state of Bahia. Mm. And they're going to distribute 50,000 free casherolas so people can bring it in, into the stadiums. And, well, for sure, we're going to hear, the, we're going to listen to it, and then we're going to have the first impression if people loved it, hated it, or, or what. So... It is a mystery for me, too. I, I don't know if it's going to catch or not, you see. So the casserole was actually introduced on television this week by none other than the Brazilian president, Dilma Rousseff. What did she say about it? Does she feel like Brazil needs its own version of the Vuvuzela? Oh, she said she liked it. She said the, the casserole is cuter than the Vuvuzela. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> there's a musician called Carlinhos Brown. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, he's quite famous here in Brazil. He is from Bahia. He, alongside uh, with an American company, actually, they created the Cacherola. And obviously this week they showed it to the to the president and she wouldn't say anything different, which, which she, I mean, she said she liked it. She said it was cuter than the Vuvuzela, <laughs> uh, but I don't think she's going to take one to the stadium, no. Now, I gather you were just out shopping at the supermarket. Did you see any cacherolas for sale? And uh, how much are they going to cost? <laughs> not yet, not yet. Not it's going to cost 10 to $15, just 20 to 30 reais, Brazilian reais. Which that is seems our... like a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it all depends on if people are going to like it or not. I mean, if it becomes a fever, then... Well, it's not that much, $10, okay, we can pay that. But if it doesn't, it's going to be real, a real fluke, you see. It's going to be very expensive all of a sudden. So let's see how people react. Julia Gomez, a Brazilian sports journalist in Sao Paulo, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. A note now before the break, a sad one, unfortunately. One of the first big musical stories I produced for this show was about guitarist Bob Brosman. He's from New York, settled in Northern California, but I always thought of him as a citizen of the world. For a blues guitarist, a sound he coaxed deftly out of his vast collection of vintage guitars was totally global. That's because he built bridges with other talented musicians from around the world. A short list of those collaborations would have to include Takashi Hiryasu from Okinawa, Debashish Bhattacharya, an amazing Hindustani slide guitarist, Rene Lakaya from Reunion in the Indian Ocean. Anyone Bob Brosman met who had his same openness to music, he'd gig with. Happily so. Brosman may not have been widely known, but as he told me more than 10 years ago... I made it into this book called A Thousand Great Guitarists, and in my little paragraph it says... Brosman will never be very well known because he plays too many kinds of music. Yesterday, I learned that Bob Brosman had died in his home in Santa Cruz County, California. The cause is unknown. You know, we often hear about music being a universal language. It's a great notion, but Bob Brosman, who also had a passionate interest in science, is the only person who ever gave me a good explanation as to why music is a universal language. As he said the first time I spoke with him in 1998, we human beings are nothing more than a calcium bucket filled with salt water. The neurobiology of playing a musical instrument is completely scientific, but it's also an absolute miracle that you're taking basically a calcium bucket full of salt water that's run by a weak electrical signal, and you're using it to move your flesh around in order to manipulate an instrument which disturbs air molecules between you and the listener, and then 
the listener's ears picks up those disturbed air molecules, which generates a weak electrical signal to their calcium bucket full of salt water, and they feel a feeling. That's miraculous, and, and that's where I live. The late guitarist Bob Brosman speaking with me 15 years ago. So if you ever want to know why the music on this program makes you feel good, even if you don't understand the rhythm or the words, remember that great explanation. Here's Brosman doing what he did best, a track from a few years back on which, unusually, he's playing all the instruments. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There are still lots of questions about the Boston Marathon bombings, starting with... Did the two suspects act alone or not? And if they did act alone, how did they get all the weapons and make those explosives? The world's Aaron Schachter wondered about that, but then he wasn't sure if it was a good idea to try and find out. Apparently, I'm one of like four people on the planet who didn't know what a pressure cooker was. But now I do, and I'm kind of curious. How do you make one of those things into a bomb? Bomb making pressure So I started searching online. Then it occurred to me, aren't they, whoever they are, watching the net for potential bomb makers? Because here's the thing. A friend of mine once downloaded an HBO show he wasn't supposed to. HBO emailed him cease and desist letters for every single episode he'd grabbed. Ten letters. If HBO knows that I, my friend illegally downloaded TV shows, how is it possible that a would-be terrorist can merrily search online for bomb recipes? There's a technical answer to that, and there's a legal answer to that. Richard Barrett is a former U.N. anti-terrorism expert working now with the Sufan Group. Legally, you are actually taking something from HBO that belongs to them without paying. Technically, it's quite difficult to identify all these people because there's thousands and thousands of people who look at these websites. And most of them look at the websites and maybe they think they're a joke. Maybe they take them seriously but don't do anything further. And it's incredibly rare that somebody looks at these websites and through looking at these websites gets radicalized to the point that they might commit a violent act. Barrett says the fear that someone's watching actually serves as a good deterrent. But for the most part, he assures me, I'm in the clear. So I tried searching again for bomb-making and pressure cooker and no recipe. All I got was news stories. Add some search terms to try and hone it down. You might add the words how-to or make, okay, or instructions. Try. That's Nick O'Mealy, author of The End of Big, a tale of how the Internet has changed our world. How to make a bomb. How to make a simple smoke bomb. Seven steps with pictures. How to make a bomb from household items. That was pretty easy. The cat is out of the bag, so to speak. Mealy says these days there is an online world and an offline world. Law enforcement, for the most part, is living offline. They're trying, but haven't really figured out how to use the net proactively to track the bad guys. Mealy says at the dawn of the Internet, society didn't take the time to figure out how to balance free speech with the reality that some people won't read the anarchist cookbook just for a chuckle. The problem is that in some sense we abdicated and let the nerds decide a whole bunch of this stuff without a whole lot of discussion or consideration about the larger context of it. And this is a pretty good time for us to tune in and start figuring out, is this really how we want it to work? 
And the issue is much scarier than most of us realize. There's a guy in Texas who's been building gun parts with a 3D printer, and he's very public about it online. There's an encrypted network developed by the U.S. Navy to help activists in places like Syria work undetected. But it works for terror cells, too. Nick O'Mealy says there aren't any solutions to this Internet conundrum just yet, but he's confident we'll figure it out. If the Founding Fathers could imagine the Constitution and the way our democracy works when their only real experience of the world was hereditary monarchy, then I have some faith we're up to the task today. Whether what's accessible online eventually changes, well, who knows. In the meantime, search on and indulge your curiosity. For The World, I'm Aaron Schachter in Boston. The weekend is nearly here in, let's see, just a few minutes now. Of course, weekends around the world don't all start or end on the same days. For many years in the Arabian Gulf region, the week's days off were Thursday and Friday, Friday being a holy day. But over time, most of the region has switched to Friday and Saturday. And Oman is about to follow suit starting next weekend. That would be next Friday. But as the world's Alex Galifant reports, there's still one major holdout. Saudi Arabia hasn't made the change yet. It's not certain that it will. But it seems Saudi's Shura Council has been thinking about it. The council's a kind of advisory body to the Saudi king, and it's the king who will ultimately make the decision. Still, there is a big incentive. This is all about economics. This is Gregory Gauss III. He's a specialist in Saudi affairs at the University of Vermont. You know, Saudi is increasingly part of the world economy in a way that it wasn't even during the first oil boom of the 70s. Oil is still Saudi's bread and butter. I think you know what I mean. But the country's also home to the region's largest stock market. Right now, businesses in Saudi Arabia and much of the rest of the world have only three workdays in common, Monday through Wednesday. Add a fourth, Thursday, and you can make more money. But it's no coincidence that Saudi Arabia is one of the last countries to consider the shift. Again, Gregory Gauss. There's a real conservative bent in Saudi Arabia. And the idea that you're shifting what you've done in the past in order to accommodate the non-Muslim world, so to speak, would be something that wouldn't sit well with a lot of the people in the Saudi religious establishment. But so long as Friday remains sacrosanct, the other weekend day is just a choice. I mean, Thursday, Friday, Friday, Saturday, who cares? You get two days off. Unless, of course, you don't. In some industries, it's not unusual for people to work five and a half days each week. I called up my brother-in-law, Colin Murphy, or Murph. He's a project director working on large-scale infrastructure projects in the Gulf. A few years back, he worked in the United Arab Emirates, where they observed a Thursday-Friday weekend, the way Saudi Arabia does now. People would do their half day of work on the Thursday and then have all of Friday off. In 2006, Murph remembers... That changed. The announcement was made, and it was in the newspapers, and suddenly the talk was around the office, so they're changing the weekend. And uh, we were a bit surprised. Thursday became a full, normal working day. Friday was still totally off, as before, but Saturday became the half day of work. It was all a bit strange, because an early finish on a Saturday just split up the, the weekend. It'd go Friday off, Saturday morning at work, Saturday afternoon off again. So much for a restful weekend. Not easy for businesses or families or anyone. A lot of companies just gave up and everybody took the weekend off. As in the full weekend, all of Friday and all of Saturday. And then back to work the next day. But not to worry. I don't care if Sunday. It's blue. Monday. It's gray and Tuesday. Too. 
Wednesday. I don't care about you. It's Thursday. I'm in love. Thanks, Alex, but I think I like the original lyrics better. The world's Alex Galifin getting ready for the weekend himself there. Eric Goldberg composed our theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening, and whenever you start your weekend, have a good one. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.